Morning, New Hope Church. I'm going to ask you to go to Judges chapter 6 with me this morning. We're going to dive right in. Um, I'll give you a little bit of a summary in just a moment, especially if you're new here. Uh, we're in a study called E2E, Eternity to Eternity. We started with the book of Genesis and making our way to the book of Revelation. This is a great story that we're about to take on this morning. But just know this, I'm going to be breaking all the rules because we have to cover two chapters. And one thing they teach you in Bible college is don't do that. But um, we're going to go two chapters, but obviously it's going to go pretty quick so that we can get the full breadth of what's going on here. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for each and every soul, for the privilege we have to be in this place and joining virtually. It, it's doesn't go without notice, God, that you gave us the technology to even be able to broadcast a service. And you, you put the signals in place at the day of creation that we harvested in our generation. We were able to use it for virtual broadcast and we're able to be here in this auditorium and enjoy great worship. All these things we thank you for. All good things come down from you. You are the Father of heavenly lights. So we praise you for that reality. But we want to know you better. We want to understand how you move in this planet, how you move in our lives. We want to know more about you. So we pray out, God, asking, no matter where we're at this morning, that you would use what we're about to look at to speak into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would know you better, and in turn, we would know better who we are. Father, we ask for that, that you would accomplish that in our life and that we would translate that into speaking into other people's lives. We pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior and all God's people said, amen. Where we were at in Judges chapter 2 last week, God made it very, very clear what had been going on in the nation of Israel and how they had abandoned Him. Here's kind of a summary passage from that for you from Judges chapter 2 verse 20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, because this nation, notice that phrase right there, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain. Uh, something that's very subtle, but is an obvious note of contempt in that statement. You notice that God calls them this nation. He's not calling them my people. He's not calling them Israel, my chosen people. This people whom I delivered, what He's saying to them is this nation, I'm going to treat you like all the other nations. This nation is a very subtle statement, but He's saying these people are not actually being my people. This is a really serious issue that's hanging over the top of the story of Judges chapter 6. Now, here's the background for you. This nation that had started off, these people who had started off with such promise, they quickly move into this cycle of pain, repeatedly abandoning God, rebellion, to such a degree that God lets them go. Fine, you want to go? I'll let you go. And He lets them go. Now in Judges chapter 6, we find that this people who once belonged fully to God, fully His, finds itself chasing after a pagan culture and behaving in ways that they would have never dreamed of earlier. 
Now, to a modern reader living in the 21st century, when we look at what God just pronounced there, we would say that's pretty bizarre that God's going to use and allow the very elements which actually drew His people away to serve as their punishment. And He's going to use their response to that punishment as a measure of whether or not they're faithful. You can be sure that when we looked at this last time, we discovered what the reason for the defection was, and we labeled it apostasy. If you're new to church, the word apostasy essentially means this in a nutshell. You know what the truth is, you actually begin walking in it. When a person apostatizes or commits apostasy, they turn and go the opposite direction, even though they know what the truth is, they choose to go another way. So this thing that God's calling them out on, He says it's a very deep-seated failure, and your failure is to deal with this thing. So God's calling out in Judges chapter 2, you saw last week, this duality where they say one thing, yeah, we believe, yeah, we belong, but they're actually behaving in a completely different manner. So in reality, as you study the book of Judges, what you find, it's not the foreign people that live among them that's pulling them away, or even the Baal or the Ashtoreth poles, it's their own heart, the lack of commitment to God. So don't think for a moment this testing that they're about to go through is to prove anything to God, because God knows fully who are His. He's omniscient. He knows completely who belongs to Him and who doesn't. It's actually for the benefit of these individuals so that they can see who they are, where they stand before Him, and, and when they discover that, perhaps they would correct their life so they would get back in line with Him. So what you find is the book of Judges is a really dynamic book because what it does for us in the 21st century, it forces us to examine our own lives and ask ourselves this question, am I guilty of compromising my relationship with God? Have I done those kind of things? Do the gods, small g, of this culture have my affection? Am I a hearer of the Word but not a doer of the Word and therefore deluding myself? You remember that verse from last week? Let me put it on the screen for you again. It comes from the book of James. James 1.22, prove yourself doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, in our modern world, living in the era that we do, we would read about these individuals chasing after these gods, small g, and say, no way that would happen here. We're too smart for that. We know that Baal doesn't control the rain. We have meteorologists that tell us about the hydrological cycle, and, and we certainly would never let Ashtoreth determine our sex life because in their world they did, but that'd be preposterous. We're, we're a science-based society. You would never find Americans abasing themselves before cultural issues like sexual preference. Huh. Stings, doesn't it? That society could come to that place where we could look at these stories and say, we would never let reproduction issues sexually become a God which steers culture. We, we would never let that become a thing to drive our nation away from the one true God. Like, how primitive would that be? Here's a truth for us in the 21st century. The idols that they worshipped in the ancient world is gift-wrapped in the exact same package that the ancients faced at that time. 
Whatever that thing is that is in your life that's more important than the one true God, the Lord God, and His directives, that thing is the God, small g, of your life. Now, here's the positive side of what you're going to look at in the story. The courage of this judge, we used that word shafat last week, the courage of this particular judge in this story to stand against the wave of his culture, it is so encouraging. His courage is encouraging because he's decided to live exclusively for God in the midst of an age of compromise. He's actually a doer of the word. Someone who hears what God calls him to do and carries it out. And his name is Gideon, and his story covers 100 verses. We're not going to do all 100. We'll do what we can here. He's a simple man. He's working on his dad's ranch, and he gets confronted by Jesus. But the story doesn't begin with Gideon. Let me give you the background. Verse 1, Judges chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years... So we've already discovered God's people are not living for God. Well, how bad did things become? Well, we discovered last week that everyone was doing as they saw fit in their own eyes. That's how bad things had become. So in response, they're so lawless that they're doing everything that they saw fit in their own eyes that the Lord gives them over, and now they find themselves at the mercy of this group of Midianites, which is an invading army that's come against them. Verse 2. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east to go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and, live no, and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. If you've raised children in the last 20 years, you're familiar with a Pixar movie called A Bug's Life. Remember Hopper? Hopper was the dude that came in like a locust and took everything that he wanted along with his posse. They took everything in the way of grain and crops, and this is like hopper in the Old Testament. Because of Israel's rebellion against God is so severe, God gave them over. And so they find themselves living underground because of this vast army that's covering the surface of where they're at in Israel. So many, there's too many to count. And the destruction is so great, they're compared to this plague of locusts. Like these swift moving camels going long distance, and the Bible says all the way down to Gaza. Yep, that same Gaza. They're roaming freely, helping themselves to the crops, helping themselves to the livestock, and the nation is reduced to absolute poverty. And literally, Israel is running for the hills. And it goes on for seven years. And in the midst of their seven years, in deep distress, they cry out to God, and God, in response, skewers them. Look with me, verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, He sent them a prophet. Pause right there. Uh, wouldn't you expect it to say, because of all the other stories you've read, He sent them a hero? No, He sent them a preacher. You, you think He's going to send a hero, but He sends them a prophet. 
He's not going to send a rescuer just yet. And this, we don't even know who this prophet is, but this is what he says to them. Here's an edited way of looking at it. He's speaking for God. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. That is not what you want to hear when you cry out to God. When you cry to God and ask Him to rescue, you want Him to send you a rescuer. But God's response in this case is, I told you so, and you chose the opposite, and now there's going to be consequences. Have you ever noticed when you read through the Bible that God doesn't bother with small talk? He never says, how's the weather? How's the kids? How's the coffee? He always goes very deliberately, very intentionally with a penetrating issue right to the heart. Over a period of years, this nation had eliminated God from their society. The affluence that they had experienced led them to this place of spiritual amnesia. And moderns would look at this and say, wait, these are the same people that God rescued from Egypt? How in the world could that happen? Well, erosion is always slow. Loss of morality is never an explosion. It's always an erosion. No one begins their day by saying, I'm going to see how rotten I can be today. No one wants to start out that way. But it happens over a long period of time. It comes in little decisions. And soon society finds themselves condoning things they would have never dreamed of 20 years earlier. Ultimately, that same society becomes so hard-hearted, they refuse to hear God. And so God has to say in verse 10, look at it very closely, you have not listened. Your, Your translation might say obeyed. It's the same word. If you hear it, you're expected to do it. So the, the word emerged. You have not obeyed me. So here's what's totally unexpected. Because church people expect when we pray, God's going to respond. What's un- unexpected is they pray and they get a preacher. And the preacher shows up to tell them that they messed up. Why does God do that first in sequence? Why the prophet? Well, so things are really clear in their mind that they understand that it is only God's grace and God's mercy that's going to get them out of this mess. The sin has caused them to forfeit any chance of deliverance. So they need to hear the truth of God's grace and His mercy, and they need to grasp it. So they understand what God's about to do on their behalf. And now this is a super tense moment in Israel. Their fate hangs in the balance. And thereby, enter Gideon. And this is a hero that you would think is an unlikely hero. This guy's had bad third quarter earnings, has not gone well. He's heavily invested in the commodities market. And it's harvest time. Go with me to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So mark it, it's the peak of the harvest. He's labored all summer long in order to bring his crops in, and now we find him in a wine press because he can't take his crops to the normal threshing floor. That'd be too visible. Hopper would be able to see you. 
and steal your crops. So instead of going to the place that's on a high hill, which is where the threshing floor always is, so when they throw the wheat up in the air and the chaff is blown away by the winds, the heavy wheat kernels would flow to the ground. But when you're down below the hill and you're in a wine pit, there's no wind. And so when you throw the wheat up in the air, the chaff comes right back in your face and it gets in your ears and in your eyes and goes down your throat. And that's no place that you want to be after you've worked all summer long. That's not very productive. And it's in that place that God shows up. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. No doubt if you're standing there as an observer watching this, he's going to be quickly spinning around like, who are you talking to? Because he doesn't look like a man of valor. Fear is in full swing at this point. He's already under all of this tension. And you've been in that place where you've been startled by somebody coming up behind you when you didn't expect him. Your heart jumps up into your throat. Well, this is a voice coming out of nowhere. And Jesus has just called him a mighty warrior, which seems completely out of line with what's in front of him. Does a mighty warrior hide in a wine press? which tells you right away how God sees you this morning is not how you see yourself. How God sees us is not always a match for how we actually think of ourselves. It's very clear that Gideon's capacity as a warrior in this story here is not in his own strength. He does not see himself as a warrior. So his capacity is not in his own strength, but rather because God is with him. So bear down on verse 12 with Jesus making this statement, and I'll explain that in just a moment if you're not familiar with me saying that's Jesus. The phrase is, Yahweh is with you, the Lord. I didn't capitalize that. It's capitalized in the original text. Yahweh, the Lord God, is with you, which goes back to the basic meaning of the promise when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. What should I tell them to call you? Because I'm gonna go before all these people, God. How do I name you? Tell the people that I am, I am that I am. And you will know for sure that I am with you. I'm going to be there. My promise is that I'm walking with you, Moses. God says the exact same thing to Gideon. I am with you, the Lord is with you. It's the promise that God commits to everyone who belongs to Him. God's presence is with us. That's why you find Paul writing what he does in the book of Romans when he makes this argument. If God is with us, who could stand against us? God walks with you, and we often forget that. Now, Gideon is a man with an attitude, and it's just under the surface. Watch this in verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Instant argument back. I don't see evidence of this. Now, he doesn't know who he's talking to yet, but it doesn't take much to draw him out. Obviously, Gideon is a guy who's heard about God's previous interventions, so he's got head knowledge. Head knowledge to some degree, verse 13, part B. Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And he's not wrong. God did let them go because they abandoned God. So he's right on with his statement there. But have you ever heard someone 
blame God for their stupid decisions, right? We've all been there. Maybe we've done it ourselves. This is what you see going on with Gideon, is blaming God for the bad choices of his nation. Now, obviously, Gideon hasn't read verse 10 yet, because in verse 10, what we just saw was God said, this is the situation. It's because you haven't obeyed me. You're in this place that you're in because you have not listened to me. So he has both poor listening and he has poor theology. And he's saying, God is to blame for this. So just like Joshua, Gideon needs a theology correction. And it's very clear, he doesn't yet know who is talking to him. So verse 14 comes along, and the Lord, Yahweh, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? So the Lord turned to him. We don't know what happened up to that moment, but something obviously very significant in the conversation in that moment, whether it's the piercing glance, whether it's the stare that went right to his heart, we don't know. But what we do know, there's something very significant in the language that changes here. God sees something in Gideon, something that he has not yet seen in himself. And we might call that untapped capacity. There's a consistent thread throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. I know you can say amen to this, especially if you've been there yourself. God specializes in calling people who are weak, all right? right? All of us. God specializes in calling people who are normal, whatever normal is. He especially specializes in calling people who have very little to offer. So note what's going on here. To fix the issue with the nation, God has to begin with an individual. And He's not changing the legislature. He's going to deal with personal responsibility first. And he starts out this way in verse 14. You bear it down. Look at what we just read. Go in this might of yours. Okay, the guy's hiding in a wine press. What might does he have? How can God make that kind of a promise to him? What might does he possess? He possesses the promise that God made back in verse 12. I'm with you. What is your might this morning? God is with you. You're not doing it in your own capacity. The I am is present. Does that sound familiar to you? It absolutely should. God says the exact same thing in Matthew 28. Look with me at verse 19, church. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. And it's not just to the end of the week. It's to the end of the age. Was that just for Peter, James, and John? Was that just for Philip and Thomas? Or was that for the entire church? God says to the end of the age. Well, Peter, James, and John didn't live to the end of the age. You are. So God says, I'm with my people. I am with you and I will walk along with you. And he's never rescinded that promise. 
You this morning, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you exchange your weakness for God's strength in the moment that you decided to follow Jesus with your life. God's strength clothes you. But like Moses, Gideon's going to protest because he thinks, I'm not the guy. Go with me to verse 15. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. In other words, I have no superpowers. He believes that he is less than. Can you relate this morning? Most of us feel like we're less than. It's kind of the dirty secret that everybody hides. We present ourselves as being all that, but inside we feel less than. Why we feel the need to tell God what we can't do, I don't know. So in Gideon's mind, because he's thinking he's less than, he feels he needs to tell God that. And that God can't use him because he's a nothing. God delights in normal. He specializes in using normal, and we are all normal. We're all less than. That's why Scripture says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Are you guilty of disqualifying yourself because you feel less than, because of your past? Do you disqualify others because of their past? We're told that we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. So this is a self-confidence issue that God has to work on in all of us. So he reminds Gideon again, verse 16, and the Lord, Yahweh, said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, we're going to skip all the way down to verse 21. I'm going to explain to you what's going on in between 16 and 21. He's realizing this is no ordinary person now. Light bulb's going off. It's making sense to him. And so Gideon begins preparing a sacrifice. And this is an expensive thing to do when food is really scarce. And he brings out a half bushel of flour and he begins making these cakes, and then he puts some meat on a rock, and then comes verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out and touched the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So because of this burst of fire and the vanishing of the one right before his eyes, Gideon knows this has been a God encounter. So we get verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and immediately he begins to think he's going to die. He's just met the pre-incarnate Jesus, Jesus before Christmas. God shows up multiple times before Christmas in the Old Testament, God the Son evidencing Himself with this phrase, this title that we looked at before, the angel of the Lord. So you notice him saying, am I not going with you? Then the Lord said to him, and is capitalized as Yahweh. So Gideon's in fear because he has enough theology in his head to know that you can't see God and live. And so he wrestles through that issue, but then comes verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl and the second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Ooh, that one, you should really underline that. That your father has. 
and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And now, New Hope Church, we are learning just how serious the issue is nationally and personally. Because without any delay, without any time going by, God is requiring Gideon to respond to his call by taking decisive action. And he's got to deal with his own family first. He's got to prove himself a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word. And God expects him to do something because his daddy embraces Baal and he's got monuments in the front yard. Some of you all are flying Michigan State University flags in front of your house. I know because I've been by. Some of you all are flying Michigan flags in your house. Oh, come on. No booze, or did you say go blue? <laughs> it might have been that. So th there was booze in the nine o'clock service. All right, so, so we tend to put things out that advertise our loyalty, right? He's put monuments in his front yard to advertise his loyalty to Asherah and Baal. He wants the entire community to know he prefers this goddess, small g, of sex and this Baal god who controls the agriculture and the rain. And Gideon is in a family that worships Baal, which is stunning to me, New Hope, because these are the descendants of Joseph, the same Joseph you studied back in the book of Genesis. Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the tribe of Manasseh. These are the great, 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 great grandchildren of Joseph himself. And Gideon has to take a stand for God in his own home. Now, perhaps you are in a situation very similar this morning where you find yourself having to take a stand for God in your own house. Maybe you're the only member in your household that actually stands for God. If that's the case and you find yourself in a similar situation, pay very close attention to the sequence of which God describes for him to deal with this. Because, very importantly, before this man can ever walk on the battlefield for God, he has to first deal with his family. And God had said, get rid of the sin in your house, get rid of the Asherah pole, and get rid of the altars to Baal, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter seven. So what Gideon knows, as he's risking his life now. His life is at risk if he obeys God because Baal and Asherah are super popular in culture. They're the gods of prosperity and they're the gods of sexual liberty. And you can do whatever you want if you worship those gods. I described to you last week that Asherah represents this vile practice I won't even begin to describe for you of sexual freedom in their culture. But Baal, that was linked with bull worship, cow worship, and these bulls obviously are reserved for that cult. Well, his assignment is super hard. He's being told, you've got to tear down the Baal altar that's in your dad's front yard, and then you've got to sacrifice your dad's prized bull on that altar using the wood of the Asherah pole for fuel because this purging has to take place in his own house. So God has just told a follower of his, you've got to put your past in your past, Gideon. 
And as we've noticed, this is not your normal hero. A person who wants to say, yeah, I'm charging the enemy. I'm not ready to stare death in the face as Gideon's thought. But, gold star for him, he does have a greater fear of God than he does of man. And so he follows God to the detail with just one variation. Verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So he does precisely what God instructed him to do, but he's also absolutely correct. His action kindles the anger of his entire culture, and they want him dead. So the next morning when they wake up and they just see piles of smoke going up in daddy's front yard. They want to know who took out our bull, who burned our idol, who took down Baal, and they want to kill him. And so they wake up the dad, and they tell the dad to kill his own son. One of Gideon's own men rats him out, and the dad refuses to put his son to death. And he says this, if Baal is so powerful, Baal can defend himself. So Gideon picks up a nickname. You're going to see it come up in the rest of the story here. Jerubbabel, Jerubbael, Jerubbael, whatever. (laughs) It's a derogatory term. Verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And if you go to Judges 8, you'll find there's 135,000 warriors that are in the Midianite camp. Verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers to Asher, Jebelon, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So you're looking at a man who's fully surrendered to God at this point. And the result of that is he's energized by the Spirit of God. If you're new to the Bible, what the Bible indicates in the New Testament era after Jesus is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it's with you for all eternity. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go depending on what the action of God was. But praise God, when Jesus came, we get the Holy Spirit for life, guiding us and walking with us. So you find the Holy Spirit coming upon him, clothing him, and then he sounds the trumpet, and the first people to follow him are the people of his own clan, the Abyssalites. And then his conviction becomes contagious because he took a stand for God and his culture. The culture begins to respond and the warriors start showing up. So the Reformation at home did exactly what God knew that it would do. And it inspired people, verse 36. A little bit longer, but hang with me on this. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Now, at this point, pause right there for a second. He becomes very conflicted because he's thinking, Huh, I bet that test was not hard enough. I need a harder test. Go with me. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just test just once more with the fleece. 
Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Do you think that he ran to the fleece the next morning? I think he's that scared that he did. I want to know, what did you do, God? Because he's full of doubt, and hear this very clearly, church. He is not doubting God's capacity. He's doubting God's selection. He blew the trumpet after the Holy Spirit came upon him. But he's thinking, I'm so insignificant. Does God really want to use me? My family is so messed up. Yet he gets a gold star again for this very important detail. If you look very closely, students of the Bible, at your Bible, verse 34, what you're going to notice is he blew the trumpet and called the army together before he put the fleece out. Why is that important? Because he knew that God was going to deliver. God had already promised it. What he's saying is, are you going to do it by my hand? Because I'm really not sure that you are. If you're going to do it by my hand, I need this fleece to be wet. Now, this dry fleece, wet fleece thing, this is what Gideon believes that he needs. And here's what's astounding to me theologically. God condescends to answer the request. That God stooped to Gideon's weakness is evidence of God's grace because he knows us so well. He built us, he wired us, and he knows our weakness, and he knows when Gideon needs to be reassured. So he's not rebuking him for asking. He wants us to know that he's with us, so he tells us, I'm never gonna leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You belong to me. Now, wool has a tendency to absorb moisture. We know that. But fleece, because it has a tendency to retain moisture, it can only remain dry if something supernatural happens. Now, I'll speculate with you. He could have chosen anything for his proof. The answer would still be the same. If God says he's going to be with you, he's going to be with you. Mm, delayed response for the amen. <laughs> if God says he's going to be with you, he's going to be with you. It's the, the truth of God's word, church. We know this. We own this. Let, let's finish it out. Go with me to Judges 7. This moves pretty quick. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. So this Midianite horde is four miles away. It's like from here to Okemos. And there's 135,000 of them. And they hear about Gideon's army and his 32,000 who have shown up but they do not see them as a serious threat. So we get this information here, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. <laughs> You know, at this point, Gideon's doing timeout. Wait, I'm losing two-thirds of my army? It's already more than four to one. 
They've got 135,000, I've got 32,000. This isn't working. They've got soldiers, I've got farmers. And then this is the first step in God's troop reduction because he's allowing the faint-hearted to walk. And here is a New Testament image in the Old Testament. Really bugs me when people say that the, the Old Testament is useless, that it's outdated. In Judges chapter 7, verse 2, you have God saying, I'm going to prove to you that it's not going to be by your strength and your might that I'm going to save. It's by my strength, and I'm going to show you great evidence that you can't work to earn your salvation. I want all the world to know, God is saying, you are not saved by your own effort. That's why you find the authors of the Scriptures in the New Testament saying, it's not of works lest anyone would boast. It's by grace that you are saved. This is grace all over in the Old Testament. So 20,000 leave, 22,000 leave, and then God keeps reducing the number, verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Now what happens in verse 5, we're just going to skip over it, is this special screening process. It's just plain weird. <laughs> Based on the remaining 10,000 and how they drink water, God's going to separate these individuals out from the crowd. And you've never seen a test like this. Verse 6, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So you get the picture. Lapped means they're scooping water up with their hands and they bring it to their mouth and drink, and that's 300 do that, but 9,700 get down on their hands and knees and drink water right from the lake or from the river. So this strange procedure nets 300, and you know Gideon is looking at this very, very closely and watching the process, and he has to be thinking, okay, 300 more are going home. I'll make do with 9,700. This drinking style shows nothing about their warrior ability because this is not based on their ability. It has no bearing on the outcome. This is God's curveball. And you find God's curveball all the way through Scripture, most notably and especially in the crucifixion of Jesus. Who would have ever guessed that God the Son would be killed by a bunch of Romans on a Roman cross? Nobody saw that coming. Well, God's doing the exact same thing here. This is God's curveball, verse 7. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. Do you not wonder how long Gideon stood there with his mouth wide open? <laughs> what? It's bad enough that we went from four to one down to 13 to one, and now it's 450 to one? What? Verse eight, it's just an amazing description to me of how far Gideon has come in a very short period of time. Watch the faith of this guy, verse eight. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets 
And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Notice who said that. And he sent. That's Gideon. It's in a small h. And he sent. He told the 9,700 to leave. Okay. God's up to something. I don't understand it. He's up to something monumental. You guys leave your shofars here. You guys leave your swords here. You guys leave all your provisions for us. There's just these 300. 9,700 turn over all their equipment. The shofar is a ram's horn. It's, it's curled. Perhaps you've seen that in biblical literature. It's, it's not a trumpet, not a musical instrument. It's a very long communication device. But we're told specifically he retained the 300. Now, in Hebrew, there's something remarkable about this special forces here. There's less than 1% of his original army, and I'm sure Gideon is feeling sick at this point. But here's where I'm speculating with you. When it says he retained the 300, the Hebrew word actually is grabbed hold of. Somebody wants to go and you're pulling them back. What it's implying, and I know this is speculation, is that these 300 want to vanish also. (laughs) Wouldn't you? And yet Gideon is the one pulling them back and telling the rest to go home and leave their shofar. That's why I'm saying this guy is really advancing quickly. The Holy Spirit is upon him. His 300 are beginning to tremble. So God intervenes, verse 10. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Remember, this is nighttime. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. If you are afraid. Statements like this remind me that God has a sense of humor. But at the same time, he also knows us very, very intimately, and he knows our weakness. I'm guessing Gideon put on his Nikes and sprinted to the outskirts of the camp. So it's nighttime, and he shows up at the edge of the camp, and we're told this in verse 12, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And the first view is terrifying a limitless sea of warriors, and you can easily count Team Gideon. There's 300, and these guys are without number. And if you're close enough to hear the enemy conversation, you are well inside the enemy lines. So Gideon decides to stop outside a tent, and he's close enough to see the glimmer of the moonlight and these guys' swords. 135,000 warriors, and Gideon happens to end up right next to the tent of a guy who's just had a really bad dream. Watch, verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. 
Church, he didn't worship after he put the fleece out. He worshiped after he heard the Word of God confirmed. God's Word spoken, he heard it confirmed, and it causes him to become giddy like a kid. And the word that's used there for worship means he actually went face flat on the ground, totally prostrate. And I'm thinking, like, kicking, yes, this is so great. I'm worshiping you, God, because of what you've just confirmed for me, because he knows this is way more than coincidence. And it's far better than a piece of wet sheepskin. So I want you to see the transformation that's taking place here. Same thing takes place in you. There's a transformational understanding of faith on Gideon's part. You've heard, if you've been here for any length of time, a definition, a very simple faith definition. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. You consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ? It's because God revealed to you who Jesus is and your response was your faith to what God has revealed. It's true throughout the Bible. When God reveals how we respond to what God says is our faith. So faith is my response to what God has revealed. And so as a response to that, I'm able to see things other people don't see. The same is true of you. You're able to do things other people don't do because of your relationship with God. But it's because of your faith in God's capacity, not in your own capacity, but because of what He can do. Verse 15, part B, that's where Gideon's at. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. So there's no doubt in his mind now. His faith has grown that much. He's at this place where he's fully committed because he's overwhelmed by confidence in God's provision and God's activity that caused him to fall in worship. And the confirmation of God's own word is like nothing else. Dr. Wearsby wrote about this when he was writing about Judges chapter seven. This is his quote. Before we can be successful warriors, we must first become sincere worshipers. It's really good. God made a commitment although they still have to go to battle, and it's gonna be unlike any other battle, God made a commitment to them, and they've already won this battle. This 300 group can stand with confidence because of God. God says the victory has already been accomplished. This is the kind of confidence that Paul wrote about to Timothy when he said, I know whom I have believed in, Look at me, look on the screen. 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Gideon is ready, and he's ready because he's dealt with sin, he's confronted his fear, and he's worshiped God, and now it's time to act on what God has revealed. Verse 16, and he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Did you ever put a flashlight under your chin to freak out your siblings? <laughs> I've done it. We've all probably done it to some point. It's not freaky to you, but to them, if it's dark and you've got a light shining up under your chin, that's this. They put the light inside the jar. It's casting this glow up over these warriors. 
these 300 men who are standing side by side by side on a plateau overlooking a valley with this really eerie light lighting up around them. And the glow is the glow against the silhouette of a soldier. And you may not know this, but in ancient warfare, one light represented a legion of warriors. So one light per 1,000 was kind of the standard operating procedure. So these 300 standing with this eerie light, with this glow, and now they've got these trumpets at their side. These are not musical instruments. These are advanced directional communication instruments. And only legion commanders were allowed to use signals on the trumpets in command direction. So you got 300 trumpets, you have 300 lights, and it appears as a vast army, and this vast army is about to give the shout of a war cry from the plateau looking down on this valley. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands, left hands, the torches, and in their right hands, the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now it's sound asleep. Everybody in the camp is in the middle of the night. It's the middle of the watch, we're told. And the first thing they hear is the sound of a war trumpet, a shofar. And the very next thing they hear is the crash of the jars breaking, and suddenly these 300 torches light up the sky around them, and it appears to be a vast army. And to add to the nightmare, there is this war cry that's piercing the night air, flowing down over the ridges of the plateau and into the valley, and it's echoing into all the tents. And the Midianites believe that they have been swarmed by this incredible, vast military death trap. And all the chaos takes place between 10 p.m. and midnight when the new guards are put on duty at the middle watch, and they could not possibly be ready to respond. Israel's only weapon is shock and awe. That's all they have. So they yell out, a sword for the Lord, which they don't even have. That they're threatening death by a sword which they don't even have at their side. It's it's like the crook that comes up to somebody with their hand in the pocket and says, raise your hands or your life, but there's no gun in the pocket. They don't have even a Nerf gun. They can't do anything, but they can do this, verse 21. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And I hate to stop in the middle of a movie, but you need to read Judges 7 and 8 yourself. So you get the ending of where this is going. But here's the summary for you so you understand. Judges 7 and 8 will explain it to you. Take the time to read through it, but here's the summary. The Midianite army becomes convinced that Israel's army is in the camp, and they're about to be massacred by this foreign invaders. It's nighttime, they can't see, they don't wear uniforms, so they begin fighting against each other. In confusion, they begin killing each other, and Gideon and his group of 300 stand motionless with 300 beacons of light around the rim of the valley. 
And Judges chapter 8 will tell you that 135,000 warriors came into that valley and 15,000 remain at the end of the night. 120,000 fall by their own sword during the night. Gideon has come a long way from standing in a wine press. God spoke, he heard God's word, he believed God's word, and he acted on God's word, and that church is obedience. What a massive reminder for you this morning, what a massive reminder for me If you're a person who has a hard time believing that God will use you for kingdom purposes, hiding in a wine press is living by sight, not by faith. And had he remained in the wine press, he would have never been written about in Hebrews chapter 11. A nobody from nowhere with a screwed up family, an almighty God tells him that he's with him. Does he deserve to walk with God? We'll make this participatory. Does he deserve to walk with God? No. Does God give him the privilege of walking with him? Yes. Doesn't deserve it? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve what Jesus did for us. The good news of this story, the good news of God's word is we do not have to stay where we are. Because of Jesus, Anybody can be changed. Anybody can have a new beginning. See, Gideon's story is your story. It's the gospel of grace in the Old Testament. And it's a great news story for anyone who wants a new beginning. But to have a new beginning, you first have to deal with sin in your life. That's what God's very clear about. That's why the story is so compelling that Jesus shows up at the beginning. Because Jesus is the one who calls him out and says, You've got to deal with sin. You've got to deal with the sin in your own world, and then we can move forward, Gideon. That's where all sin is dealt with. It's dealt with through Jesus. And so that's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Pay very close attention, church. Last verse. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, if your sin has been dealt with in Jesus, You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Praise God for that truth. If you need to deal with any of these issues this morning, you want somebody just to talk with about this stuff, I would encourage you after the service, go to the prayer room over there where that big cherry door is at. There'll be individuals over there who would love to talk with you. I'll be here in the front. I'd be honored to talk with you. Right now, let's pray together that God would use this story in our life this week. Would you join me? Father, I thank you for what you've shown us in Gideon's story and being reminded once again that our courage is totally based in what you can do. So we would ask this week as we take on our responsibilities that to stand for you in the midst of our culture, it requires you to be with us, to strengthen us. You've already given us the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for the reality that we walk with you. And we ask that you would help us to act on that. Use us. Use us to speak into the lives of people who are precious to us. We pray that we would be a good model of Jesus this week. And we ask for that in his matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.